Welcome to Mind Rolling with Raghu Marcus and David Silver. Hi, Dave. Hi, Raghu. Um, we're going to talk about teachers and preachers and moochers. <laughs> All right, now let's. We're going to get serious about okay, this. Okay. Teachers. No, no, and we're talking no spiritual mucho. teachers? Yes. Right. Um, well, I think a lot of people encounter us, and they ask about our experiences getting transformed in the day and hearing about different spiritual paths and so on. And... Um, you know, you sometimes get incredulity about, you know, first of all, what is a guru? And second of all, um, what is enlightenment? And what is a teacher, a spiritual teacher? Uh, so I want to talk today just about, and I think let, let's... Uh, we're, I keep referring back to Ramdas. You do as well. I guess uh, th there's no avoiding it because he translated that stuff so well, and uh, the aphorisms that we know, you know, they really speak to the reality of the situation. Um, but and uh, here's where we can audibletrial.com because I want to talk about his book, which explains what the difference is. In I mean, there's, it, this book does a lot, but it does explain what the real definition is of a guru or a, a Baba, whatever, a, a, you know, a, a realized being, a saint. People talk, oh, this saint, that saint, everybody's a saint, you know. Mm. Yeah, and so on. So on audible.com, you have uh, many of Ram Dass's great books. But Be Loved Now is there, and if you go to audibletrial.com slash podcast or to our site, you can get uh, shifted over to get a free trial, and you can just get that book for free. So that's the end of that uh, um, intermission. So, But in this book, Ramdas gives a definition for what that realized being, saint, guru, whatever you want to call it, is. And um, in its most simplistic terms, uh, it is someone who is absolutely not in time and space. It is somebody that is prescient. And in India, that's called antarayami. It's a Sanskrit word, or maybe it's Hindu, Hindi, hmm. meaning knower of all hearts. That being knows all of your past lives, all of your, uh, your present, of course, and your future. That it's out of time. That being has complete access to anything that is needed in the moment. For, to help people become free. That is the essential, uh, and, and Ramdas, of course, goes into way more detail about this and gives many examples of these kinds of beings and, and what, the, what that reality is. 
so that is what is termed a realized being or in India known as a siddha, an accomplished being. I think accomplished being is probably the my favorite term for what this represents. Like Buddha, it's been accomplished. They are in the present all the time and out of time and space. Now we have teachers. Now many people mix up guru with teacher. Now And there can be many gurus, and that word is in the English dictionary now, meaning someone who's the most knowledgeable about something or other. Um, and that, so that word has been completely watered down and has no real meaning in the West anymore. And in, in the East, that is the being through which you can become free. So then we get to teachers, and there are many, many, many teachers um, in, in many, many spiritual traditions. And some of them have more negative proclivities than others, and in that sense, many people get hurt. And I think in my encounters with, with people, and you can tell me if it's any different, I have seen a lot of people get pretty mixed up by various teachers who some of them have lots of quote-unquote spiritual powers where they actually can engage the energy which is available to everybody and gather it together and use it to unfortunately take advantage of their students. And this has happened, and it happens in the yoga world, and it happens... uh, just yoga teachers do it as well. So it is, um, there is something again in India called spiritual discrimination. It's called varag is the, is the Sanskrit word. And uh, that's a really important thing uh, that unfortunately you can only get by experience. And so um, it, taking advantage of some of the negative experiences. that So no, if you take it from the point of view of awareness, then nothing is negative or positive. They are just fodder, for, grist for the mill to be able to transcend this stuff. Now, um, Dave and I got involved in the early 70s, and this is when I had first come back from India with a whole group of people after um, Neem Karoli Baba left that body, in 1973, and within a couple of years, many of us gathered around a Brooklyn housewife named Joya, who was married to an Italian guy in in Brooklyn, in a normal middle-class family with several children, who... uh, one day was trying to lose weight and taking diet pills and end up having ended up in her bathroom having conversations with uh, the likes of Christ and other gurus from India. I mean, a completely out whacked out there uh, thing that we and many of our friends uh, were part of in the mid seventies for a couple of years, for a few years. Um, and both, and in fact, Dave, didn't we meet really in that scene then, I think, right? Well, yeah, substantially, yeah. I mean, we'd met before another teacher's, but, I, you know, yeah, it was in her in her aura, if you like. And uh, she joined another teacher and uh, kind of took over the class. And um, she was, let's just get this straight, one of those charismatic and magnetic 
human beings one could possibly encounter. Uh, she was kind of a large woman, uh, quite striking looking. Large? Yeah. Well, I mean... Yeah, you don't mean large. You mean stature-wise. Yeah. She, she had a large... Uh, she, yeah. she Statuesque. Yeah, she was statuesque. Yes, yeah. that's a better word. Um, she was very good looking. Beautiful. Uh, beautiful, beautiful woman and very well spoken. And what got us, or one of the things that kind of hooked us in was her astonishing knowledge about things she could never right. have actually encountered in the physical material world. Not being a housewife in Brooklyn with a guy distributing Cokes. Right, exactly. And to sit in her bath and talk to the great, uh, well-known, real guru, Nityananda, um, mm. was astounding to us because in our knowledge, we knew about these, these gurus and uh, we'd studied and found out about them and some of us had actually met uh, a scattering of them, but she hadn't. So this sort of whatever, however she connected with them was astounding to us. Not only that, but she was incredibly articulate about it and very strong and a very amazing speaker, funny, sometimes brutal, sometimes gentle. She was uh, the most profane mouth yes. of anyone I ever met. Yeah, she could swear like a trooper and like a sailor. And, you know, that didn't... That, what that did was it showed the amalgam of her, the sort of mix that she was. And I have to say that I was drawn into it. It was uncomfortable. She would call out people in the class. And scream at them. Yes, sometimes about <laughs> very intimate things. And I was was uncomfortable with it, but I actually thought, I rationalized and said, this is a hard path of self-awareness. And to get to self-awareness, you need a teacher like this who's sort of like the classic Buddhist monk with the stick who'll smack you on the back of the head when you start to fall asleep instead of sitting up straight. She was that to me. She would smack me metaphorically uh, and get me awake and all of us. Now, and we, we, were drawn into, we were drawn into her. Yeah, we were. Now, uh, this is where the enigmatic part comes in because... For many, many people that I happen to have been in India with who were there, she would say to people that were with Neem Karoli Baba physically just a couple of years before, she would say, Maharaji is telling me to tell you to blah, blah. Mm. And, of course, these people would freak out that, you know, what, is she taking over? So the enigmatic part was absolutely there. There was certainly, uh, you, this was so far in up your ass and in your face teaching <laughs> that you had to absolutely fall back onto your intuitive self. I mean, that, that you were forced to do that. Now, some of these same people, and, you know, maybe some of them are going to listen to this podcast and go, what in the heck is he, you know, um, because there was a lot of pain inflicted and uh, some people were really suffering. So enigmatic in that there was some things that came out of this uh, on a day-to-day -day basis that were true and recognized by your own true self and things that were introduced uh, by her that uh, were invaluable. And then there was the other side of it where people were getting hurt, that she, her ego was involved in this stuff. There was no doubt about it, and we knew that. But she kept pressing and pressing and pressing people uh, to to uh, and she wanted a certain kind of respect, and she was fierce about it as well. And I'm, you know, so fierce. I mean, we used to do these eye contact things, right, with her, you know. And she, I mean, you know, how about the fiercest, you know, woman you ever met, most powerful, 
you know, uh, sitting, you know, like two feet in front of you with those eyes and this, this uh, what's called in India Shakti, this uh, powerful energy, um, it was not nothing. But um, it's a perfect example of, I mean, am I wrong here? No, no, you're right, because I know that I was... You know, I was brought up in England in a fairly sort of political, intellectual family, and I was skeptical about anything spiritual for a long time. So I was the perfect person to be able to say to people, ah, this is bullshit, forget about it. I didn't. I was drawn in totally and learned a lot from Jaya. I learned how to meditate ultimately from her because she had uh, or she suggested that we have long, long meditation sessions sometimes as long as a whole day without moving and, and, and that. And I did it reluctantly at first, but I will say this. It gave me a ground, the groundwork for further um, development of meditation, and I learned how to meditate because of the disciplines that she inflicted on us. I think she was just nice to you, nicer than she, she was. She was nice to me, it's to true. She was That's nice really to me. what was going she on. She was there. nice to me, and that, it made it even more difficult because I would defend her uh, to people who would, you know, st- sort of things started to happen, and various people started to say things like, I'm not sure about this. And I do remember one conversation that I had on Martha's Vineyard, away from New York where she was, on a beautiful beach somewhere, and um, somebody said to me, Come on, Dave, you don't really... I mean, this is ridiculous. She yells at people. She's a maniac. Why are you going to her... Med- I, you, I thought you were smart. I thought you had discriminated. And I, mm-hmm. I would fight about it and say, look, the spiritual path is not easy. It's not just all, you know, love and granola. You have to go through a lot of changes to get to self-awareness. So that's what's going on. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And I would get actually kind, kind of, you know, defensive about it. And so... I have no, uh, there was nothing in me that saw through this until a kind of a critical mass of people in the satsang, as it was, the group of, 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 you know, sort of kindred spirits, shall we say, who went to joyous classes. And there came a moment when we all saw it together that this was getting out of hand and people were getting hurt, as you said before. And my, my heart sank. And said, you know, if people are getting hurt, that ain't that don't fit with you know, Yogananda and Jesus Christ and 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 uh, you know Siddhartha. It's, no, that's not what. No, and but it took me years. So how do you deal with this? Because let's face it, the sixties and seventies. I was in my twenties and thirties. Um, when I first started going to Joy, I was in my twenties actually. Um, I didn't have a kind of background to be able to see the difference between something that was bogus and not. Now, was it bogus that she communicated with with other saints or gurus or whatever? No, because nobody was sitting behind her, you know, feeding her on a head. Who would know? We wouldn't have known from nothing. No. So... We didn't know from nothing. No, we didn't. So we were fooled. Well, fooled is the wrong word. You were drawn in because of the power of it. It was very powerful Mm -hmm. and very... And you sort of had that feeling, okay, this this is it. Here we are in New York City, in Queens and in Manhattan, going to these meditations. You come out of it, you'd feel kind of glad to get out of them sometimes, but you would feel a certain, a certain, as Raghu said before, the word shakti, this, this in, innate power. And so it, it rationalized after we were, rationalized. Let's face it, we were power mongers probably. Huh? Probably. Now, I have to say at this point <laughs> that I had a particular 
situation happened with me. A gentleman called Stephen Diamond, uh, who most unfortunately is no longer with us, passed away a few years ago, wrote an article for New Age Journal, Mm. uh, egg in my face, and it was a cover article, and he wrote it in my apartment on the Upper West Side. The entire, he was staying with me. And one day he left to go somewhere and left the manuscript on my dining room table. He'd been very, you know, I'm not showing it to you until I finish. But being the honest, wonderful person that I am, <laughs> I read the entire thing and almost passed out because it was such a, 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 a sort of, you know, it was an expose. Right. Now, Diamond, Steve Diamond, was a very, very special, intelligent person. He wasn't really following a spiritual path, but he was a deeply penetrating writer. Anybody who met him knew that he only wrote what he felt was true. And I was devastated. A, because he wrote it in my apartment, and B, because I thought that he was full of crap. And he was just another cynic who was, or skeptic, who was saying, you know, I don't believe in anything. And he would have written this about anybody. But the truth of the matter is that article precipitated the end for a lot of people who mm-hmm. read it about a month later. No, and tell what, of course, folks, it's about Ramdas and his uh, separation because it was due to Ramdas, you'll love to hear this, that many, many, many people came there because yeah. he went there. Uh, and, be, you know, in the begin, he was told things that she just couldn't know, you know, that were private to him and Maharaji, whatever. Who knows what the hell happened? But basically, we did be- go because of that. Yeah. And then he left, and then uh, many people left at that time, and, and then others of us stayed on a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. But, um, the, the, you know, I think, what did you say? You said, fool yourselves. Mm. You know, and I just never thought that I I was fooling myself. I might have been, like you're saying, attracted, definitely was attracted to the power part, you know, and death definitely was attracted, you know, to some of the otherworldly astral things that she was doing, right? Um, and she was a really charismatic figure. So oh. in all of those ways, but in the, the you know, I, you can't f- fool yourself. You're just, you're fooling yourself. You think you're fooling yourself because you're just, you're doing things that are making you, uh, satisfying you, making you uh, comfortable, happy, pleasure-filled, whatever it was. I mean, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was our penchant, karmic penchant to do something exciting. Right, right. And a lot of that was involved, you know. And eventually you found, like, okay, I have no more business with whatever this was. I've learned what I needed to learn, and and you move on. But realize that if you're sucked into something like this, where it's two worlds, there's some great things come of it, and then there's some negative things that that come of, of, you know, being with a being that is, you know, is involved with her ego. I mean, she still was involved with her ego, although she she wasn't afraid of a lot of shit, and she had a lot of power as a result of that. She worked with AIDS people for like 30 years, by the way, after this. She just died this year. So she did a lot of good things as well. That's what I mean, enigmatic. But whatever it was that we attracted us there, that was our karma, and we had to work through that. And, you know, um, that's why some people that are like, Jesus, I can't believe, it. you know, that was just terrible. Mm-hmm. And uh, just one anecdote. Um, 
after Ramdas left, so we were, you know, helping her out and stuff, and she was completely, she went even more wild after that. I actually, one day, I was living in one of these, you know, the houses there, we had these communal houses, and I, I had some acid. So I said, uh, I'm going to take this acid. She said, all right, well, I'll do it with you. I said, okay. We went into a large closet, which I had, you know, all kinds of spiritual artifacts in and music, you know, instruments and so on. And I took this acid and sat three feet in front of her, and we did eye contact for about, I don't know, hours. Oh, um, no, no, no words, no nothing, and I went into all these incredible astral realms, but... I, I mean, you know, it's not nothing taking acid on your, you know, no. on any level, especially with someone like this. So I had enough uh, confidence that she wasn't evil or anything, you know, that she was still caught in whatever. But I thought she did, she had love, you know, uh, love of of, of Nimkaroli Baba, love of Mar, love of God, whatever. She had a pure place. And I, I guess I was confident enough of that that I would actually, you know, I had a major acid trip with, and she wasn't, by the way. She was completely straight. And uh, Wow. I must have told you that one. No, actually, no. And I can't even begin to imagine taking <laughs> acid in her company because it was like acid to begin with. Uh, yeah, I you know. know. It was pretty, pretty I mean, out there. Oh, listen, I have one other thing. I want yeah, please. Not to say about this, but... Um, Around that time, um, I used to hear about uh, this uh, teacher named uh, Bubba Free John. And he was like this Westerner, and I thought this was another one of those worst cult things <laughs> that I had ever, because I heard all these crazy stories. He ended up in an island in the South Pacific or something with this group, yeah. uh, a smaller group, and it was like, you know, you did what was supposed to happen or, you know, according to their little structure or you were gone. I mean, it was terrible what I heard about this stuff. So th- two weeks ago, my erstwhile lovely friend here says you know i just picked up a book i can't believe how great it is it's really been giving it's been giving me uh you know incredible insights and so on it's spiritual this that and the other god and he says i said who's that and he says dafri john which was his name later um i said are you out of your mind this is some kind of cult you're going to start but uh, can you all right listen well, we I, and we haven't gone much further than that but you know can you just <laughs> I want something a pearl of wisdom that's well, not oh god uh, esoterically uh, Well I mean actually what happened was that I was really sick and being a melodramatist and a drama queen of the first order I thought well I think I'm going to die and <laughs> um and I, I I was so desperate one afternoon I couldn't I just couldn't do anything. I, I was really kind of ill. And I was looking through my bookshelves, and I have so many books that they're doubled up. So there are books behind books. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to the behind books because they always go to the front. What's behind there? So I go behind, and I see this book immediately called Easy Death. <laughs> that's for you. And I thought, okay, that's good. Going. That's what I want. I'm going to die. I want it to be easy. Fine. I'll read that book. It was like 900 pages long. And I picked it up, and because I didn't want to commit myself to it, I started at page 300. I'd know it. You had written it. I didn't even look. And I read about five pages, and I was very relieved of any kind of fears I had. And I thought, oh, this guy can really write. And then I looked at the 
if you can believe how crazy this is. I now looked at the cover, and it said it was by somebody called uh, Da Abadasa, otherwise known as um, Adi Da, otherwise known as Bubba Free John, otherwise known as Franklin Jones. And I remembered then, oh, my goodness, this was one of those cultists in the 60s and 70s that I studiously avoided. (laughs) How could I be reading this? And then I called... Rago said, I'm reading this great book, and I was first I was just going to lie and say, I didn't, <laughs> oh, not lie, just not mention the, 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 the writer, but I did, and, and the response was predictable. What? <laughs> You're reading that maniac who, you know, well, the truth of the matter is that I'd heard of him back then, and I think, I think I'm writing saying that I avoided even reading anything about it because there was a definite cult vibe here. But this is where it gets difficult. There, it is true that people who are not true gurus can still have knowledge. And if you're not actually sitting in the room with them and being influenced by them and whatever other abuses are going on, the words that they put on paper uh, can sometimes have great wisdom involved in them. Uh, so I went on reading the book, and everything I read about what he talked about being, for instance, death is not an illness any more than pregnancy is, that it's normal, and it's just another moment, which is something that Ramdas has said many times, and that you must get used to the idea that this little life here is just a life, and there are millions of others, and there's an entire cosmic universe, and it is not faulty. Death is normal, healthy, and desirable. And as I'm reading this, in my drama queen uh, personality, <laughs> and I, I, I got a lot out of it. Then I started reading a book called Knee of Listening, which is his autobiography, and found out about him. He was just a guy that was born, in, I guess, in Long Island and and uh, was in New York and gradually uh, became involved in various teachers, some good, some bad, and then uh, became a teacher himself and eventually became a, a, a so-called guru to quite a few people. And there was a lot of gossip about him, as there were about many of these people like Rajneesh Osho and so forth. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of gossip always. And, you know, you could either go one way or the other and say, well, you know, there's gossip about everybody. And people don't understand unless they're actually in the room with him. But I do remember that this was not someone that any of us wanted to have anything to do with. But I got a lot out of this book. Now, the question is, uh, is it possible to gain insight and and also to um, enter a realm where, um, uh, you know, meta, kindness, loving kindness... So, um, uh, selflessness, service, savor to other people can emerge out of something that which wasn't pure, or is the impurity of the of the source an actual pollution upon your devotion? It's not a question I can answer that easily. Well, they, but, they, they, but I just want to say one thing. One of the things you said, Raga, at the beginning of this, which is so crucial to this, is that what's happened is whether whether we're clear about individuals or not, once you start to dilute and degrade a word the word being guru or sadguru, and any old person who puts on, you know, sort of a robe and and starts chanting in Sanskrit can actually call him or herself that. You could say, well, that's okay. If it helps someone, it's okay. No, it's not. Because as soon as you start to degrade the meaning of the pure, the pure ascended master, you're doing a disservice. Because then you're not... It's like saying, you know, that someone who plays music and is sort of okay, and then his girlfriend says, he's a genius. Mm-hmm. And you, and you go, okay, I'll go, go and see him. You go to a club, and he's not a genius. 
What does that do for Bob Dylan and John Lennon and Brian Wilson and Joni Mitchell, who oh, are geniuses? It's all gone. It's gone, gone, gone. Those words are finished already. There's They're, nothing to say right. about it. And So, so and what you really, said before means a lot to me because I think that, you, you know, without being uptight about it, you have to make the definitions clear. And I remember you saying to me not long ago, you know, that if someone is out of time and space and knows all hearts, which is fantastic three words, knows all hearts, sees into people with compassion and helps them in various ways uh, become self-aware in some way and get and involved. Free. Yeah, free. free. That is a, a being that is rare indeed. Um, and, you know, I've been studying and involved in this in the deepest way for 45 years and um, have fallen few times into traps, but beginning to see now that to keep the purity and discipline of that definition is very important. Mm. Right? Absolutely. I think it's, but it's more important, not in relation, I don't think, to how we refer to, you know, we get a lot of references where people refer to, you know, this saint, that guru, and, and perfect master, and all those words. And that's going to go on forever, and it's not going to mean anything to the individual that doesn't have a direct experience, because direct experience is right. the only way. And what I was going to say is that what they do say in India is, you know, the student can exceed the teacher, that the teacher can give the student, the student can realize these teachings beyond which the, the teacher could not. So it's that is a truism. I mean, I really do believe that. Um, but degradation of reality is dangerous because that means that the real power and beauty and 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 givingness of a true master um, is 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 somehow you know lessened when those that are not coming from those high chakras. You can have knowledge, you can have information, you can have charisma and be coming from a very low chakra place, if you like. I'll, I'll, let me give you a funny thing that occurred to me, just like this nanosecond. I went, and bear with me a minute, I went to a, screen, a, a screening of a Woody Allen film about four or five years ago, and I don't remember, I think it was Scoop, I think it was. And um, it was at a, a, a cinema in, in Westchester, which is a real cinema, and you can, anyone can go to it, but it is a club also. It's kind of a cinema club. And I went, I was invited, and, and to see this screening of Woody Allen's scoop. And I watched it and liked it, and I like Woody Allen, makes me laugh, very insightful. And then the owner of the cinema came on the stage after the film and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is an unprecedented moment. He's never done it before. Ladies and gentlemen, Woody Allen. Hmm. And Woody walked on the stage. And for almost two and a half hours, he answered questions freely from the audience. He didn't give a speech. Anybody could ask him anything. And he was extremely likable, which I didn't expect he would be, and very open. But he said something that blew me away. At one point, somebody stood up and said something about Ingmar Bergman and Woody. Now, Woody Allen had made a film many years ago, which was a Bergman-esque type film. It was mm -hmm. his only attempt at making like a totally serious film. Um, and I think it was shot in the Hamptons. And it was a huge failure. So Woody Allen didn't speak for a moment. And he said, I want to talk about something with you guys. It hurts me enormously as an artist to ever be compared with three people, Bergman, Fellini, and Kurosawa. Those are the three they compare me with. He said, if I am indeed in their league, then they are indeed not geniuses. Mm. And he repeated it. He said, I'm not being falsely modest at all. I'm not particularly modest. 
I like some of my films. They're funny. They're okay. But to compare me with Bergman or Kurosawa is a degradation. And it hurts me because I love those masters. I watch those films. I can never do what they do. Never. And to say that I'm on their par lowers them and heightens me in a way which is completely distorted, false, and dangerous. We mm. must be careful about who we call masters mm. and not. Mm. And I sat there and the breath almost went out of my body because he was, he was 20 feet away from me and he was very serious about this. This was no fooling around. Mm. And you know, the same is holds true. There are great yoga teachers, there are great teachers, there are great Buddhist teachers, many of them, who are sincere and very, very wise. But you've got to be real careful when you talk about true saints, you know. And Raghu was with Ramdas and many others who had the dosh and the, the physical presence and effect of, of um, Neem Karoli Baba. Uh, you know better than anyone the difference between being in that presence and being another. It doesn't say that the other person is no good, but just let's get our terms right. Mm. Right? I, yeah. I mean, that was a tremendous digression. Yes. It's my only way of expressing what I feel. I agree. About I agree. I agree. I mean, the only thing is, of course, these people who are really uh, living in this place, they have, there's no thought whatsoever. They do not have thoughts about their place uh, in history or anything like that um, or comparing to anything. There just isn't that kind of process going on like when we used to sp you could talk to Maharaji but it wasn't in, in, in the normal rational sense that, that you were talking to in fact he used to talk to us by asking us questions hmm. you know it was a whole different kind of conversation so but uh, uh, listen uh, this has gotten very weighty but let, me, can I, let me just say something I think we have to say here so it doesn't sound like pure you know elitism in other words, I met Nimkarili Baba, I met Ramakrishna, I met Yogananda, therefore I met a real ascending master. You didn't, so you're not getting that experience. The very truth is that if someone is a master of time and space, he's, or he or she is always present and available just by well, a photograph. Well, many, or, but, you know, so you can get there. Who, you, yeah. you, your own experiences with Shirdi Sai Baba. I don't think yeah. you met him. He left in 1920. 1918, he died, and I've had you were born in, in 1902. I'm leaving. Uh, I'm leaving. I'm gone. I'm not that old. I don't look that. But no, you could have met him. Truth of the matter is that, that, that I learned about him in 1971. Something attracted me to him enormously, uh, and I, I've been ever since then studying all the books about him and looking at pictures and meditating and all of that. And it's been in incredibly enriching to me. And I never met him, and and it, it, but it, it, he he got inside my heart. And um, when I went to India the very first time, I noticed that he's a huge, huge master mm, in India. Course. Tens yeah. of millions of people. Uh, when you go into a little store to buy a cell phone or whatever, you'll see a picture of Shirdi Sai Baba. And to them, he's like a member of the family, you know. And he is, yeah. he himself was enigmatic, not in the way that oh. we've been speaking of here, but in the way that oh. he was beloved by Hindus, and he was beloved by Muslims, and no one ever knew really where he came from. But he was beyond sect. Totally he used to, beyond sect. when he was 17, when he first turned up in Shirdi, he would do uh, Hindi bhajans in a, in a, in a Muslim 
uh, masjid yeah. or, or temple yeah. and then do, um, uh, you know... Sufi stuff. Uh, in Sufi Hindu Islamic temple. stuff in, in, yeah. in, in Hindu temples and people would go nuts and crazy. Mm. His point being, which is a very modern point, was, oh, come on, there's one God. Yeah. Get off my case. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, but these people, these, these great humans, if we can call them that, are available to everybody. So it's not like we, just because you met one or read about one that you're special and no one else. They're accessible to everybody. That's the whole point. They access absolutely through books, through dreams, through sightings in, in waking life. They happen in every which way. So, But more back to our, our point a little bit is, uh, I mean, I like this thing with Bubba Fridran because we had it's such anathema towards him. <laughs> All of us from back then, and I knew you did. And when you told me that, I was like, "I'm real okay." You know, it it made it makes you have a shift that you can act. What comes to you when you're in a bookstore and a book falls out from behind another book, and you know, and it it catches you. That's what it's all about. Moment to moment, you're just being open to be able to receive whatever it is that's given to you in that moment. Now, there, there, was, there was one other cult, though. Uh, you did mention them, and uh, it's the Rajneesh thing. Now, uh, I first, uh, just to say, uh, well, we were in India, and we were with Maharaji, actually, at that point. And then um, one of us, a young woman, had gone to Bombay. Near Bombay is where Rajneesh started his whole thing, um, and I can't remember the name. Anyhow, she went down there and, and she joined them for a while and did their practices and then came back up. And we said, so what kind of practices are you doing down there? And <laughs> she said, well, I went to a meditation. And in that meditation, you know, everybody sat and it was going to be, you know, I thought this will be an incredible uh, deep uh, meditation. But what ended up was uh, apparently some music started. And then everyone took off all their clothes and danced with each other and had a wild orgy. This, was, this is what this particular teaching is. Sounds good to me. So we all looked at each other. We couldn't believe it. And yeah. that's, uh, yeah, that was uh, Rajneesh's thing. Yeah. Now, now, and if you take the uh, books that he wrote, which he was talking about Tantra, which he got from the, you know, I mean, Vedic, you know, ancient India. Everything that he wrote, if you had read it, went, is like right on. Could that be practiced now? Of course, that's a whole other question in the age that we're in. Mm. But uh, there's another example. And many people, um, I think many, many people got deluded in that particular uh, um, cult. And uh, but I'm sure there was some that didn't. I've met you know, mm. people know about Hare Krishna cult, and the airports and the money and the blah blah blah. You know and how you know and vacant kind of uh, that can be at times. And and what some of these people that came and were running that thing in 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 America and created this huge temple in Virginia and so on. I have met some of these people who do chant the best of any of the chant that I've heard. Yeah. You know, and it's where we first learned. So you you take what you, you're given something, you're presented with something, and you're able to take what it is that you need in that moment. If you become obsessed with it, if you become hooked on it, just like we talked in another podcast about the, about the, the web, you know, oh. it's neutral. You 
you get what you get out of it, and some of it, and and realize it can be negative and can be positive. And in this same sense, that is very much what goes on, um, you know, in in this country now, um, in the West, with spiritual teachers. Um, I think that um, we have been in more recent, not in the recent twenty years, whatever. Um, David and I have certainly shared a uh, a love of Buddhist teachings, particularly some of the Tibetan teachers, which you know you're 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 pretty able to find. There's many of them because of the Chinese uh, and uh, getting them out um, in doing what the genocide they've done in the country. Many of these uh, lamas have come here and. Uh, and um, and and are teaching and in a very very straight ahead manner. Is there problems with some of them? I'm sure there are. But uh, I think one of the things we can do with MindRollingPodcast.com is, and we are doing it uh, more, is to provide some of the uh, resources that are based on our experiences. Um, this mind rolling podcast, you know, mind rolling comes from uh, a, a being that I uh, bumped into, a Tibetan lama named Kandro Rinpoche, who is absolutely one of the clearest, most profound uh, teachers around and down to earth stuff that helps you day to day and is not uh, so esoteric as to not finding any connection with. And, um, you know, we are going to. Put that stuff up. I mean, I think we should. Uh, some of the books and some of the, the particular teachers that are alive today that one can access. And um, But I think uh, my surmisal of it is, when we talk about enigmatic teachers, is that there is both good and both bad that are out there within every being that is not finished in this life, that is not a mahasiddha, as Dave said, mm-hmm. that is not a completely finished person, being. So you absolutely, we all have an opportunity to take whatever it is that's needed and trust uh, with discriminating wisdom and trust your intuition. And um, and sometimes, you know, at a particular stage in your karma, maybe you need an ogre. Yeah. In order to understand what that is, you know, I mean, I had a guy once that I worked for. Uh, I won't say who he is. He knows who he is. Who was the, an ogre? I uh, was ran a television company, and I was a director. And he would bounce checks on me. He would scream at me, even threaten me with a gun once mm. in my head. I mean, pressed to my temple. He was just the worst person imaginable. But you know something? I did learn something. Uh, I learned not to be very careful about who you give your life to, you know, who you, who, you, who you surrender to. And I think one of the things I've learned from a lot of the Dzogchen masters, the Buddhist masters, is, you know, you just have to maintain your heart and your viscera in this area. That's an awfully extreme example. The, uh, as soon as you said <laughs> gun to the head... <laughs> It went away for me, the whole idea of spiritual teachers. <laughs> I'm sorry, down the- but it happened to me. And, and I remember the time my, my, my wife was absolutely freaked out when I came home that night and told her that she said, we're moving, <laughs> you know. But the truth of the matter is I, learned, I was naive. You know, he paid me well, and I thought he was okay and everything. I had sort of doubts about him, and then this horrible thing happened. And um, 
I learned something there. I learned now with Joya, the, who we were talking about. I learned a lot from that experience. I learned to be far more careful about who I gave my heart. Now there are uh, hopefully no spiritual teachers that any of our our, our listeners are getting involved with uh, are are putting a gun to their temples. I mean that's <laughs> really a bad image. Um, and uh, to leave with something more positive. I'm sorry. Jesus, you know, I'm Christ. Uh, Damn. That's it. Enigmatic teachers go to. <laughs> mindrollingpodcast.com and we'll give you some real resources that do not include the guy with the gun to the temple. It was okay? a 45, by the way. Okay, great. All right. Thank you, folks. See you later. Bye. <laughs>